Our Bible study today is entitled, How Can All Things Work Together for Good? It's a question, and it is a question that is taken from a well-known verse, Romans 8.28. And so we need to begin in Romans 8.28. I would encourage you to open up your Bible to this verse. Some of you will know it already by heart. It is, it is a well-known passage in Scripture, and many of you will recognize it. But it's worth uh, feasting your eyes upon this verse so that you can look at it very closely because we're going to begin with that verse and then later in the Bible study we'll come back to it again so we can really get a little bit of analysis and a little bit of understanding. So as we read this verse, Romans 8, 28, we're dealing with a problem that is ubiquitous. It is widespread. It is universal, a universal problem in the world. And that is the problem that usually people simply call the problem of suffering. There's a great deal of, of information that has been, I mean, I, I don't know how many books and philosophers have struggled with the problem of suffering in the world, but it is a deep and abiding problem. And most of us, whether or not we are, you know, philosophers, one way or another, we are challenged in the area of suffering. Now, it's both personal and, and indeed, it's, it's global. Now, philosophers and people who are broad thinkers uh, are going to uh, think about all the suffering in the world. And they're, going to, they're going to really put that through their mind. and They're going to say, how can a good God allow plagues and earthquakes and horrible events, wars and catastrophes and pestilences, why would a good God allow that? And so they look at it from a deeply abstract sense. But then most of us at various parts in our life are really challenged on a very personal area. And we're not thinking about a war or a pestilence on the other side of the planet. We're just thinking about the particular problem that has entered our life uninvited. We didn't ask for it. We didn't want it, but here it is, plopped into our lap, and it's a real bitter problem. It's a real headache. It's a great challenge. It is, it, is, it is an enormous distraction to what we want to be doing. And we are compelled to drop everything and muddle our way through some kind of suffering. And so it's intensely personal. Now, there's a lot of people who struggle in this area. This is not the first Bible study that I've done in the area of suffering. And it probably won't be the last. Because it's something that, as I speak this morning, many of you can probably relate to this right now in one area or in another of your life. It's really an issue that has to be explored time and time again as life progresses and you mature through the different phases of life from childhood to adulthood to a mature person and gradually in the, uh, the latter phases of life, you have to revisit this topic again and again and again and, and really wrap your mind and heart and soul around it. And there are many different angles, biblically speaking, from which you can look at this problem. So what we're going to look at today is merely one angle, one particular angle at which we can address this issue to try to get some biblical perspective. This study is not by any means complete. I've got several books on my shelf, thick books, that deal with this topic. 
from many different angles in an attempt to help people work their way through this challenging area of life. So uh, by way of introduction, just, let's just understand that the problem of suffering is, is, is a big problem. Many people struggle with what we might call injustice, a perceived injustice. Maybe you're thinking on the grand scale, and it's the injustice of one country invading another. Or maybe you're thinking on a personal scale, an injustice that I am suffering something that I, in my opinion, I really don't deserve. Or I have a friend who is intense suffering, and they really don't deserve it. A sense of perceived injustice. So it causes many people to reject God and the Bible. Polls have been done in this area about people who have been raised as Christians or nominal Christians. And why did you leave the faith? And this is one of the top reasons is because people will cite how can a good God allow this and thus and something else to enter my life or this life of someone that is very dear to me or on a larger scale allow some great calamity to happen to people far away from me, but they don't deserve this great uh, intense suffering. All right, so that takes us to Romans 8.28. Now, as a point of encouragement, many people will land on verse 28 of Romans. So I'd like you to read this verse with me. We're just going to read the one verse. This is our beginning point in our discussion. And then we're going to take off in a couple different areas. So Romans 8, 28. Join your voices with me as we just read this one particular familiar verse. Are you ready? And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God to them who are the called according to his purpose. So the question is, how can Romans 8.28 be true? How can all things work together for good? How can all things, all things work together for good? Well, this is a real challenge. Well, the first area I'd like to examine is an area that involves both God and Satan. So it turns out that when a circumstance arises that involves suffering or injustice, it turns out that God has something in mind and Satan takes the opportunity and he has something in mind as well. Now, on our first point, when I say that often that God and Satan intend the same suffering to serve different purposes, when I say that, when I say they intend the same suffering, the same event, to serve different purposes, when I say that, I don't want to, you to construe to say that all suffering is caused by God or Satan. Indeed, much, perhaps most of the suffering that enters our life is caused by you and I. God has something in mind, though. When there is trouble that enters my life or your life, that is perhaps my fault, your fault, or the fault of a friend or a family member. Maybe we could lay blame here or there. All right. God has something in mind, though. Satan may also have something in mind when he sees an opportunity. And he says, aha, something has happened to Bill. I'd like to slip in here now, take control of this situation, and begin to 
bring ideas into the mind and heart of Bill for my objectives, for my purpose. So the question is, whose purpose is going to prevail? Whose purpose will prevail? So I've got a couple of examples I'd like to remind you of from Scripture as we begin. So it turns out, in the book of Genesis, you'll probably are familiar with the story of Joseph. It's a wonderful story. It's an excellent story, and it has a very intriguing verse in, in it, and it's at the latter part of Genesis chapter 50. So I'd like to call your attention to this story. <clears throat> of course, you will recall the story of Joseph. Joseph, early in life, his brothers, out of envy and other reasons, decided that they would sell him into slavery. So his older brothers delivered a great injustice to Joseph. Joseph ends up in slavery in Egypt. Not his fault at all. Joseph ends up going through a series of events and adventures and very unpleasant circumstances. A great deal of distress. Finally, he comes out of it. And he ends up you know, being falsely accused, he ends up in prison, and all kinds of terrible things happen to Joseph. But he finally works his way through that, and it turns out he ends up becoming a very important man in Egypt. Very important man, the right-hand man to Pharaoh himself. A period of years go by, and then Joseph discovers that his brothers have come for a visit to the land of Egypt. And you know the story. So if we just break into the end of the story, when his brothers come back after years to the land of Egypt, and Joseph has an opportunity to confront them, his brothers are very fearful now that they meet Joseph again finally after all these years. His brothers are fearful that Joseph is going to take revenge now that he's a man of great power and influence. He's going to take revenge upon them. But Joseph says this. I would like to read two verses in this story, verses 19 and 20 of chapter 50. If you remember this story. Joseph said unto them, Fear not. Don't be afraid. I'm not going to get revenge upon you. Am I in the place of God? Joseph says. Telling him, I'm, I'm not God. It's not my place to get revenge upon you. And then verse 20. As for you, ye thought evil against me. But God meant it unto good. To bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. So here's our first point. Or the first lesson, the first example in this area. Joseph's brothers intended his suffering for evil. They wanted to destroy him. But Joseph tells us that God intended it for good. What was the good that God intended? Well, at minimum, it was at least the saving of his entire clan. And we come to learn that 70 people came to live in Egypt where there was food and might have all died from starvation in the extended famine that was coming. So at least the clan was saved. 
Maybe many others were saved by Joseph's presence and the circumstances that unfolded. Now, how long did it take? What's the time factor? Here's something for you to really think on for a moment. How long did it take for Joseph to perceive the good that came out of his suffering? Did he perceive when he was in the dungeon, oh, this is the good that's going to come from me being in the dungeon? No, he didn't know then. Did he perceive it when he was in the pit? Or did he perceive it when he was being falsely accused? No, the answer is Joseph didn't perceive the good that was going to come from the injustice and suffering for a period of years. It was probably about 10 years by the time we get to the verse we just read that Joseph could say, I now see the hand of God in allowing all of this bitter suffering to unfold in my life so that much good could come from it. Probably 10 plus years. The time factor was probably, took Joseph probably 10 years or more to see how the injustice and the suffering and the travail would finally lead to something good. So there's our first illustration for your reflection. The second one is the well-known story of Job. Now, all of us know the story of Job, I think, reasonably well. If you'd like to, you might care to look at these verses at the end of Job, in Job chapter 42. So we know that Satan intended Job's suffering for evil. God permitted Satan to have access to Job, and, Job, and, 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 and so Satan wanted Job to uh, be destroyed, or at least destroy Job's faith. But God, of course, intended it for good. What was the good that God intended at the end to come out of Job's life? What good might have come from all of the affliction and the pain that Job had suffered? Well, we discover it when we read for, chapter 42 in the book of Job. When Job made several acknowledgments, number one, he says in verse 2, I know that thou canst do everything and no thought can be withholden from thee. No thought can be withholden from God. God knows every thought. Now Job understands that better than he ever did before. And now he's able to say, I, I now can understand, I have uttered things I understood, things too wonderful for me which I knew not. He says basically, I am now, and when I'm reading verse 3, Job is acknowledging that I was talking about things that I didn't know anything about. Now, if you read through the entire book of Job, except for the first two chapters and the last chapter, the whole thing is a long conversation. It's a long philosophical debate, and it goes down one rabbit trail and down another rabbit trail and down another rabbit trail. All this thinking, all this conversation... Job is thinking and talking and talking and talking and talking. And at the end of the book, Job says, all my thinking and talking, I didn't know what I was talking about. Which leads Job to this conclusion. Remember, Job was a good man at the beginning. He wasn't a sinful man. But it brought Job to a point he still needed improvement. It turns out that Job, in verse 6... He says, now I see something that I didn't see before. 
And he says, now I repent in dust and ashes. Now the good that Job sees at the end after all of this travail, Job, it brings Job to a point of repentance that was needed in his life. And Job now sees that. So what was the good? Well, the good was to bring Job to repentance. You say, well, why did a good man need to be brought to repentance? Because a good man is not good enough for God. Being good isn't good enough. The state of repentance that Job needed to please God was more than what he had in the beginning. Now, how much time went by from the beginning of the book to the end of the book? I don't really know. But I can tell you this, even if it wasn't many, many years or even months, I don't know how long it was. There was an awful lot of thinking going on. There was an awful lot of reflection and meditation in the heart of Job as he went through one thought process after another, after another, with all of his various friends that had come to chat with him. There was a great deal of thinking and digging deep into the depths of his mind and his heart and his soul and his brain as he thought his way through all of this, all of this, this issue called life. So after a lot of thinking. Let's go to a third example. This one is often cited and is reasonably well known. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul has an interesting comment. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, if you turn there please and follow along, I think you'll be edified. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, starting at verse number 7. Paul says this, kind of a remarkable statement. Paul says, lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. And this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. And God's response in verse 9, My grace is sufficient for thee, my strength is made perfect in gladness. Essentially, the answer is no. And Paul is forced to conclude, I will glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me, and I take pleasure in my infirmities, in my persecutions, in my distresses, for Christ's sake. So if you reflect on verses 7 through 12, here's what we discover. Paul had some sort of affliction that really bothered him a lot. Now it doesn't matter what it is really for our purposes. There's speculation about what it might have been. And Satan was seeking to take advantage of it. Satan, God permitted the action of Satan in Paul's life to some degree, I say to some degree, to exacerbate, to magnify, to exaggerate, to drive a wedge, to, to, to attempt for Satan's own evil purposes to try to destroy Paul, to damage Paul, to ruin his faith, to destroy his ministry, to harm his purpose in life. And Paul recognized that. And he asked three times for this to be delivered of this affliction. 
God essentially says, no, Paul, this is your burden to carry. And it's going to keep you humble. (laughs) Satan intended Paul's suffering for evil. Satan intended Paul's suffering for evil. God intended it for good. Now, what good? Well, it was meant to keep Paul humble, lest he be exalted. Paul finally realized, lest I be exalted, I have to carry this burden. Now, how long did he have to carry it? Well, it turns out he carried it the rest of his life. The time frame that Paul was compelled to carry this burden was the the rest of his days on earth. Now, what can we conclude from these three examples about suffering? That God and Satan often get involved in suffering the same circumstances, the same person's life. God permits it. Satan wedges his way in. What can we conclude? Well, we can conclude this, I believe. Satan is going to often intend your suffering for evil. And if you give him openings, he will seek to bring evil and malicious trouble into your life and make things worse yet. Worse yet. He's going to take your suffering and magnify it, exaggerate it, create new problems, spin something off over here that's new and worse. Spin something off here over new and worse to bring destruction to your, your life and destroy your usefulness to God. Yet God wants to use the suffering for his own purpose. And his purpose is for good. It is for an ultimate good. It is for a greater good. It is for a bigger good. Some good event. Some good series of events. Some good qualities. Now, God intends it for good. Now, what is the good? Well, I don't know what the good is. And here's the problem for you and I. This is difficult. This is what makes it so difficult. Is we're not going to see the good that's going to come from the suffering probably for quite some time. It's going to take two things on your part. Most likely, it's going to take two things. Quite a bit of time and quite a bit of thinking. It's going to take time like Joseph... It's going to take time like Paul. It's going to take perhaps a lot of thinking like Job. Perhaps a bit of theology and philosophizing like Paul. It's going to take some time and thinking before you're going to see what good has come from the suffering that was perhaps years prior. So if you're experiencing a period of affliction right now, And you say, I don't understand this. Well, don't become too troubled. Because you will. The chances are excellent you will. If you respond well now, you will understand it. But you won't understand it for quite a while. You won't be able to see it for quite a while. You won't be able to explain it or perceive what the good will be for perhaps many years. Now, that's a real hard challenge. This is not easy stuff. This is why many people in the pit of persecution and affliction cast off their faith and respond badly because they, don't, they can't imagine what good could possibly come from it 
And so their initial reaction is, why did you abandon me to this? I, I don't want this kind of faith. I don't want this kind of religion. I don't want this kind of God. I want a God. I want a different kind of God. I want a God who's going to answer my questions right now. I've got to know now. Don't tell me to wait five years, 10 years, 15 years. Don't tell me I've got to do all this thinking and reflecting and I've got to really study the Bible for years, months and months and years before I understand it. I need to know right now. Well, you're not going to know right now. And if you demand that of God, you're going to make an error. And the suffering, affliction, and persecution, and trouble that you have now is not going to be ameliorated. It's not going to be diminished. It's not going to ease until you get to a point where you can say, aha, now I see something. Instead, it's going to, the pit is simply going to get deeper and deeper and deeper. And bitterness will set into your life and your heart. And you'll just go deeper into bitterness. And eventually... Your faith will be so damaged that who knows what's going to be left of it. Now, I hope you can understand the direction I'm going with this and what I'm hoping to, that you can perceive. Let's go a little further, though. <clears throat> it turns out that God permits. God permits many unfortunate, sad, problematic painful things to happen in our lives. God permits things that he actually hates. But he permits what he hates to achieve in us what he loves. He permits what he hates to achieve in us what he loves. So what does he want to achieve? What is really the end goal? If there's some good, what is really the end goal over here? Well, the end goal, speaking broadly, is the same for all of us. And that is, God wants us to become Christ-like. He wants us to be like Christ. He wants us to be like Jesus. That's what he wants. He wants us to, be, to grow in wisdom, maturity, understanding of God's ways. He wants our motives and our desires. He wants everything to become more Christ-like than what we were before. That's the goal. That's, that's the image. That's, 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 that's the challenge. That's what God is after. That's what he's wanting to do in your life. Now, there's a number of places we could go to emphasize this, but I better read into the record three passages. So, if we return to Romans 8, 28, I'll go ahead and read verse 29. So, we began in 8, 28. Verse 29 goes like this. It says, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. Now, I'm not here to go into the theology of predestination. But it goes on to say, those whom he did foreknow, he did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, one day, our conformance to the image of his son is going to be so complete that we will receive a glorified body that will be marvelous. But before we get that, before we enjoy the resurrection or the translation, we still have to become more Christ-like in this body, in this world, in this life. So if you turn to Romans chapter 12... 
verse 2. Paul later gives us this exhortation. He tells us, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove that which is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So this verse, in essence, is telling us he wants our mind, that is, our thinking, our functioning, the inward person, to be transformed, to become more Christ-like, so that we can understand what is good, what is right, what is acceptable to God, and that we can accept the will of God. And that we're interested in God's will, in contrast to our own will. Now, if you like plain speaking, go to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21. So Paul's style is a little more philosophical, whereas Peter's style of writing says it more plainly, more simply. So perhaps this will capture your attention. 1 Peter chapter number 2 and verse 21 goes like this. For hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Christ suffered for us. He is our example. We should follow his steps. We are called to be Christ-like. We are called to emulate him. And all of this is going to involve some suffering. And it turns out we can't really be Christ-like without a measure of suffering, distress, affliction, persecution, etc., etc. So, while many of us would say, oh, let's be like Jesus. Let's get the t-shirts like they were so popular ten years ago. Uh, you know, what would Jesus do? I'll be like Jesus. I want to be like Jesus. Well, I have no objection to that slogan, but it's a little bit glib. It's a little shallow. And most people sporting the t-shirt, what would Jesus do, probably didn't have in mind the, uh, the thought that I'm going to have to go through a lot of affliction and suffering to be more Christ-like. That probably wasn't really their frame of mind. But a mature Christian needs to be aware of that as not simply a possibility, but more like a at least a probability, if not a certainty, that to become more Christ-like, we have to go through the suffering. Did you imagine, for all of us who say, yeah, I want to be Christ-like, did you actually imagine that being Christ-like was going to be easy? How many of us would say, oh, I, I thought being Christ-like was pretty easy to do. I want to be like Jesus. Did you really think that's going to be easy to do? Of course not. So, as we reflect on this a little bit more, the question can be asked, well, what does it mean to be Christ-like? What does that mean? I want to be Christ-like. What does it mean? Well, I, I, there are probably a variety of ways that question could be answered. But I'm going to give you what I think is perhaps the central idea of what it means to be Christ-like, at least in my opinion. You are Christ-like when you desire only what God desires. When, you, when your desires conform to God's desires, 
Now you're becoming Christ-like. Now that's a pretty tall order. (laughs) Very few of us here this morning, and myself included, can probably say with honesty, oh, I'd say most of my desires are, are what God desires. Probably most of our desires, including myself, have a strong element of selfishness and worldliness that we sort of gloss over and say, I say to myself, well, it's really not that worldly. It's really not that selfish. <laughs> because we're, we've got this constant tug in our fallen nature that pulls us into self-absorption and pulls us into worldliness away from Christ. So becoming Christ-like is not going to be easy. And submitting our desires and matching our desires to be like God's real desires is going to be a pretty tall challenge. It's a big order to fill. Let's go to an an illustration to help you understand this. When we think about God permitting things that he hates in order to achieve something that he loves in our life, consider good parents. As good parents, we hate to do things to our children that we know we ought to do. And I'm thinking of chastisement. As good parents, most of us here this morning understand that as good parents, we must chastise our children. We also know and would acknowledge that none of us enjoy that. None of us look forward. None of us wake up in the morning and say, oh my goodness, I hope I can spank my little rascal four or five times a day. That'll be a great day. (laughs) I'd get to spank him again. I love it. Love it. Where's the rod at? Get that rod ready. Of course not. Most of us hope just the opposite about the day. That our little rascal is going to behave himself. And I won't have to. But as good parents, we know that moments come in which we must, if we're going to be a good parent, we must bring the type of correction that involves a good spanking. Now, we hate that. I hated that. Some of us hate it a lot more than others. Some of us hate it so much that we hardly do it. We hate it so much that we don't really do it when we ought. And we may or may not feel a little guilty about that, but, you know, we just don't do it. That's how much we hate it. Some of us. (laughs) but of course although we hate it we know that it's going to achieve something good in their life we love the outcome we love what it produces we love what it will achieve in their life over time now does the child understand how immediate suffering brings long term benefit Would you expect an eight-year-old to understand in a sensible way how the immediate suffering of chastisement when they're eight is going to bring a long-term benefit when they're 15 or 18 or 25? Of course, that eight-year-old child is not going to understand that. And if you bothered to explain it to him, he may or may not agree or accept it or understand it, but chances are he's really not going to understand it at all, even if he accepts it, even if he doesn't argue with you. He's really not going to understand it. And he may not even understand if he's 12 or 14. Even if he can intellectually follow what you're saying, 
it doesn't mean he's really going to agree. Oh, great, okay. Now that you've explained that this will be for my long-term benefit, I'm 20, oh, good, go ahead, give me that good whacking. Ah, here we go. Let's get, it, get on with it, because I know it's going to be for my good. Is that the way your 14-year-old is going to respond when you say, he needs a good whipping? He needs a good spanking. He did something that was really, really disrespectful and dishonoring to me and to my commandments. And he really needs a, he really needs a big attitude change. Well, even if he can intellectually say, yeah, okay, I get it, Dad, he is not really going to accept that. And in the same respect, in the moment, none of us can perceive and understand how the suffering we're experiencing now, we're not really going to understand it unless we have a lot of maturity and biblical connection to these precepts from Scripture and be willing to say, by faith, I'm going to accept that what I'm experiencing now that is unjust, that I don't like, that I don't deserve, that is bringing misery to me now, by faith, I'm just going to trust you, Lord, that someday, somehow, years from now, is going to bring something good, and I'm going, to, I'm going to go with it. Can we do that by faith? That's a challenge. That's hard. And, but that's what we're, where we're called to, to, that's what we're called to really do and understand. <clears throat> now, it's interesting... And this is not an extremely important point that I want to belabor. But when we talk about how Satan and God can use the same suffering to serve different purposes, it's interesting that God actually allows evil spirits. He actually allows evil spirits to accomplish his purposes sometimes. So, for example, here's a, something that sometimes is cited by critics of Scripture who want to try to highlight what they believe is a contradiction and an error so, for example, there's a story of the census that David took. In 2 Samuel 21, verse 1, let me read you a verse. I'd encourage you to go ahead and open up. I'm on the back of the outline now. And if we look at the census of David, in 2 Samuel chapter 24, we have the beginning of a story. 2 Samuel 24, verse 1, it reads like this. It says, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he moved David against them to say, go, number Israel and Judah. Count them all up. This verse says that God was angry with the Israelites. And he motivated, God motivated David to count up the people. Now you say, well, why would that be a problem why would is it wrong to do that or why would God why would this be a problem well that that's another question we don't need to get into that but let's for our purposes for our purposes if we go to first chronicles 21 we have the same story recorded in first chronicles 21 the exact same story and you could read all the whole both chapters they run very very similar but there is a difference in the very first verse that is interesting because it says in 1 Chronicles 21, it says, And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. Now this is latched on by many critics to say, oh, the Bible's full of errors. Look at that. An obvious mistake. They can't both be true. 
But actually, it is both true. <laughs> you say, well, was it God or Satan who was involved here? Was it God or Satan? And the answer is, it was both. I believe the correct answer is, it was, it was both. God opened the door, and Satan stepped in and agreed. God allowed both in his providence, both to be active. Now, God knowing much more than Satan, God being sovereign, God being all-knowing, and God being providential, and Satan having none of those qualities, perhaps smarter than you and I by a wide margin, but having none of those qualities, Satan was outwitted in the end. Now, there's three other times in which God sent an evil spirit in the Old Testament to bring justice to a situation. There's at least three occasions. Three occasions that I'm aware of. How many of you remember the story in the book of Judges about Abimelech? If you don't, let me give, let me give you a 30-second recount of Abimelech. When Gideon died, he had 70 sons. And an, and an uncounted number of wives, we don't, doesn't say, but evidently a number of, he had 70 sons. One of his sons, to make a long story short, decided he wanted to be king. And so he contrived to murder the other 70, all of his brothers. One escaped, he got 69 of them. The one that escaped declared a curse, and ran away, and we never hear from him again. That was Jotham. But Abimelech, getting 69 out of 70, thought, well, that's pretty good. I'm in charge now. He goes ahead and declares himself to be the king of Israel. And he has a little power base from his hometown. His local the local boys all are behind him, right? From the town of Shechem. Several years go by, and we discover that God sends an evil spirit to, as a wedge between Abimelech and all of these homegrown local boys who had been his supporters in his rise to power, to his evil rise to power. And so we have this interesting verse in Judges chapter 9. We have this passage. It says, When Abimelech had reigned three years over Israel, then God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. The men of Shechem were his supporters on his rise three years earlier. Well, now they changed their mind. And if you keep reading in the whole chapter, we discover that everything falls apart for Abimelech. He ends up having to fight against his former friends. Other people rise up against him, and there's a big uproar of the rest of the chapter, and it's very complicated. But in the end, Abimelech is destroyed because God sent an evil spirit. And in this case, we can say God delivered Israel. The purpose in this, sending this evil spirit, is God delivered Israel from a tyrant. There's another time when an evil spirit was specifically mentioned to be sent. If you'd like to read in 1 Samuel 16, you can read about it. But you may know the story. 
King Saul, things weren't going real well for him. He'd been disobedient. God withdrew his grace, and it tells us that an evil spirit was sent. God sent an evil spirit to King Saul to trouble him. Now, it's interesting because immediately prior to this, immediately prior, the verse right before that tells us that God sent an evil spirit to trouble Saul, we just finished the story of young David being anointed king. David was anointed king. Now, guess what? When David was anointed king, Samuel came to his house. Samuel came to David's house, anointed king. And so Samuel leaves, and David's like, I've just been anointed king over Israel. What shall I do? Well, you know what David does? He doesn't do anything. He doesn't go anywhere. He just stays right there at home. But God sent an evil spirit to King Saul to trouble him. As a consequence of the evil spirit troubling him, Saul says, I need someone who can help me feel better to drive the evil spirit away. Look around, men. See if you can find somebody to help me out. Well, lo and behold, who do they find? They find David. And they bring David into Saul's palace. And David plays the harp. And the evil spirit goes away while David's refreshing King Saul. And you have this very bizarre situation where you have two anointed kings, an older man and a younger man, living in the same palace at the same time, both anointed of God. Now, what was the purpose of all of this? Well, there were a series of purposes, one of which was to bring David into the, 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 the royal entourage. But I think one of the great purposes was to contrast these two anointed kings. One was, his time was measured. And the other was on the rise. So God wanted to contrast these two anointed kings. There's yet another example when God sent an evil spirit. This is King Ahab. Now, many, many years later, actually several centuries later, there's another king of Israel, King Ahab. Now, everybody knows that King Ahab was a very wicked man. Well, one day, Ahab gets in his mind, I think I'd like to have a war. And he says to himself, hmm, before I go to war, I think I need to get a few prophets and come and tell me whether I should go to war or not. So, he calls in a few prophets, and one of them is a guy named Zedekiah, and another guy's named Micaiah, but he calls in the prophets. And in the course of conversation, they say, you know, well, one of the prophets you better listen to, at least you better get his opinion, is this guy Micaiah. And Ahab said, oh, I, that's one prophet I don't like getting counsel from. He never says anything good about me. Anytime I ask Micaiah what to do, he always declares some curse upon me. I mean... I've got other prophets, though. Well, one of them, Zedekiah, says, Oh, King Ahab, this war is going to go wonderful. And he gets a little uh, learning device. He makes a little, some horns, and, he's, and he has a little, you know, a little, little visual aid. And he says, With these horns, you're going to destroy your enemy. Go for it. And then they say, Well, we better hear from Micaiah. And Micaiah says, Well, things are going to go terrible. And in fact... You better not listen to these guys because God just sent a lying spirit into all these other prophets to tell you what you want to hear. <laughs> well, 
Ahab goes ahead with the war. And it's kind of interesting how it all unfolds. Kind of interesting. Not only did God send a lying spirit here to bring justice to the situation, but we learned something else about this story. And that takes us to our next point, dealing with suffering. Now, a lot of the times when there's events that enter our life that, just, that are hurting us, we're filled with all these what-ifs and if-onlys. If only I had remembered to put my seatbelt on. If only I had paid attention to my driving a little better. If only uh, that I hadn't, you know, if I'd done this, if only I'd done that, then this event would not have occurred. Or many of the what-ifs. What if I had been and done a better job, you know, three years ago in talking to so-and-so? Or what if I had had one more conversation with this person and didn't give up? Or what if I had done something a little different? So many of the times when we have great problems enter our life, we beat ourselves up and make it worse by allowing the what-ifs and the if-onlys to just overwhelm us with depression. And while personal reflection is good... Asking ourselves hard questions is good. There is a point in which we must trust the providence of God. And the providence of God is great and strong and powerful. And it turns out that God's providence is so powerful and so strong that we have to trust by faith that he is providential and that we're not going to sink in to the depression of what ifs and if onlys that are going to bring us down into a deep pit because not only are the what ifs and if onlys about ourselves, sometimes we're like, if only you had done thus and so, I wouldn't be suffering. If only you had not done this, then I wouldn't be suffering. Because sometimes the what ifs and if onlys become very accusatory. And it's not merely just personal reflection. So rather than sinking into the pit of, oh, if only you'd done this, or if only you'd done that, or what if you'd responded better, we need to trust in the providence of God. So I have two examples of the providence of God from Scripture that we'll call upon. And the first one is King Ahab. So back to King Ahab, where we were a moment ago. Should I go to war? Should I not? Well, his favorite prophets, the evil ones, the ones that a lying spirit had been speaking to, said, go to war, you'll be sure to win. The one said, you better not, because if you do, you're going to be destroyed. So Ahab, being the smart and clever man that he is, decided to hedge his bets. And if we read the chapter that's described there, I won't take time to read it, I'll just tell you about it, but it's in 1 Kings chapter number 22, we discover King Ahab comes up with a strategy. And so he says, instead of wearing my kingly armor in battle, which is often important in the ancient times because then people on the battlefield will know whether who's, who's the king and whether or not our king is still alive and that he's still commanding us. The reason they did that is so there wouldn't be confusion on the battlefield. The king had to wear something special. But he says, I'll disguise myself. He says, I'll dress like a regular soldier. That way the enemies can't launch an attack against me. Because, of course, you want to attack the enemy leader, don't you, when you're out in the battlefield. Let's kill the other king, and the army will fall apart. He says, well, to prevent that from happening, and to prevent the prophecy of this evil, no, 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 scratch that, prevent the prophecy of Micaiah, which was actually a very good prophet, a prophet of God, prevent his, the prophet of God's ill 
prophecy against me from coming true, I'm going to dress like a regular soldier. I'll outfox Micaiah, the prophet of God, and his prophecy. So he dresses in regular armor. Tells us about it. And, but then guess what? Guess what? About three or four verses later, the Bible's describing the battle, and it says, it just accidentally, well, the King James uses the word venture. It just, peradventure, just, it so happens, it just accidentally, that one of the enemy archers launches an arrow, comes flying in, and just accidentally hits Ahab. Well, he dies. <laughs> the point of this story is this. The case of King Ahab shows that random events are not random at all. Random events are not necessarily random at all. Now, you and I can't go through our life saying, well, I think this was random and this wasn't. I mean, there's a jillion things in life that we could say are accidental or are not accidental. And we're not really worried about the little things, whether it was God's providence that you got the rest of the ice cream or not. That doesn't matter. But we have to trust God in the big things of life. It was God's providence that I should be involved in an auto accident that I really didn't want to have. We have to trust that that suffering and that, that, that bad thing was part of God's greater plan... So that years from now, I can understand that out of this terrible event, or this difficult circumstance, something wonderful and good will come. And it wasn't accidental. Now, there are a number of illustrations in Scripture to show that things that appear to be accidental really weren't. Here's another quick story. The next one goes back to King Saul. Back to King Saul when he was a young man. Before King Saul became anointed king, back in the days of Samuel, there's an interesting story. It tells us that King Saul's father sent young King Saul, good-looking, handsome young man. He says, Saul, <clears throat> the donkeys escaped. The donkeys all escaped. Go search for him. So Saul takes a servant. And Saul is wandering around the countryside looking for the donkeys. Saul says to his servant, looks like we can't find them. I guess we'll go home. The servant says, hey, wait a minute. Before we go home, we just happen to wander by a town here nearby. There's a prophet there I've heard of. A famous guy named Samuel. Let's go visit him. And maybe, we can, maybe he can tell us where they're at. After all, he's a, he's a prophet. He'll know where they're at. So what do they do? Saul says, all right, sure, we're, we're here. Before we go home, we'll, we'll go check in, check in with this famous prophet, this famous seer. So they pop in on Samuel. But lo and behold, the day before, God told Samuel, tomorrow about this time, a young man's going to come wandering in looking for some donkeys. Your job is to anoint him king over Israel. What appeared to Saul to be an accidental meeting was indeed a divinely appointed moment in time. It was appointed 
that the donkeys would escape. It was appointed of God that they wouldn't find him. It was appointed of God that the servant would suggest, let's go see the prophet. All for the reason so that Samuel would say, Saul, I'm so glad you strolled into my little humble town. I was thinking about you. God told me to anoint you king over Israel. So it turns out, accidental events may not be accidental at all, because God's providence is at work. Now, Romans 8.28 declares that ultimate good circumstances are a truth and a reality. So one of the things, as we think about these, uh, the providence of God, and we think about tying all this together, we don't want to assume that any random events are outside God's control. Never assume that random events are outside God's control. And again, I'm not talking about the little bitty things of life that are pointless. I'm talking about the large th events of life that are possibly life-changing. We must assume that God is providential and in control. And that helps us with Romans 8.28. So if we can return to where we began in Romans 8.28, let's look at this again as we close. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. So Romans 8.28 declares an, that ultimate good circumstance, there's going to be an ultimate good that comes in time. It's not an immediate good. It's an ultimate good. It's not an immediate pleasant experience or immediately good things. It's an ultimate good thing. Now it's worth saying, though, that this verse does offer two qualifiers. It doesn't declare us that all things are going to work together for good for all people. Not all people. This verse does not apply to all people everywhere. It applies with two qualifiers. About It qualifies the people that this is, verse is going to work out well for. This verse applies to people with these two qualifiers. Them that love God. Now that's a, the first hard question that you ought to ask yourself. Do I love God? All of us should ask ourselves, do I really love God? Do I really love God? Do you really love God? And the second one, them who are called. Now, I can't say who is called. I don't know that you are called. You don't know for sure that I am called. We have to take it on faith. I have to hope and presume that I am called. I'm not going to walk through life laden with an enormous measure of doubt about my own life. It's not important for me to do an awful lot of assuming about other people, whether or not they're called. I will trust and presume that the people around me, I hope and presume, are called. But I can't answer these hard questions. 
I must simply take it by faith that I am one of God's call. And thus, if I am, I will love God. There's a final illustration. Consider the ingredients of a cake. So, most, I don't know how many ladies still make cakes from scratch. But suppose you have all the ingredients laid on a countertop of, for cake made by scratch. And uh, suppose that you're interested, you really like chocolate cake. And here are all the ingredients for that chocolate cake. You say, wow, I love how chocolate cake tastes. And here are all the ingredients before they've been mixed up and before they've been baked. Ooh, let me sample them. I'll bet they all taste great. Flour. Well, that's okay. Not horrible, but it's not very good. Uh, baking powder. Ugh. Ugh. Baking powder. That's not good. Raw eggs. Ugh. I know, I know they might be good for me. I mean, I, I saw Rocky one, but, you know, uh, uh, it's uh, not very good. And so you go down the list of all the ingredients. Maybe it's, uh, you know, maybe it's, 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 it's original raw vanilla. Oh, that sounds good. Let me have a little sip. <laughs> little, little, little stout there. That raw vanilla is not as good as I thought. Yet, yet, or cocoa. I don't, well, you get the point. Each of these ingredients by themselves doesn't taste particularly good. But if you mix them up, beat on them, you beat on them, you get it? You beat on them. They get beaten together. And then you cook them under high heat and it all changes. And you get a delicious cake. Well, it turns out that our lives are in a little bit like that. The various ingredients of our lives individually might not seem all that pleasant. But after we have been beaten a bit, and after we have gone through high heat, some intense heat, the final product is pretty good. Wow, how does that work? Well, <laughs> that's the process of growing in maturity and understanding that suffering is an important component, maybe the important component, to make us what God wants us to be, which is Christ-like. So we define good as what brings happiness now, but that's a mistake. We, God defines good as what makes us more Christ-like. And thus, we can say, yes, all things work together for good to them that love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Thank you for your time this morning, ladies and gentlemen. God bless you.